Welcome to Brain Talk, a podcast about the latest thinking and research in neurology with a specific focus on epilepsy and other seizure-like disorders. Today's episode features Dr. Jeremy Slater, Chief Medical Officer at Stratus. Dr. Slater discusses psychogenic non-epileptic seizures, also known as PNES. Let's take a listen. This is Dr. Jeremy Slater talking about today psychogenic non-epileptic seizures. This is the condition that was formerly known as pseudo-seizures that's now considered politically incorrect as uh, many of these terms evolve over time and we now refer to them as psychogenic non-epileptic seizures or PNES. You'll see it commonly abbreviated. Definition, uh, because as a neurologist we like to define everything first uh, out of the gate. These are attacks that may look like epileptic seizures but they are not caused by abnormal brain electrical discharges. So the distinction here, uh, to go back to basics, is to remember that a epileptic seizure is one, it is excessive hypersynchronous neuronal activity in the brain. So effectively a short circuit. So that uh, event, regardless of how it presents, Every seizure, whether it's a simple partial seizure where the hand is twitching or a complex partial seizure where the patient may be confused, staring off into space, maybe doing some repetitive motor movements, or a full-blown generalized convulsion, the thing that all of these seizures have in common is that there is abnormal, hypersynchronous, excessive electrical activity going on in the brain, either in one area a slightly larger area or in some instances involving the entire brain. It's important to keep that in mind because for psychogenic non-epileptic seizures the big distinction is that the brain electrical activity at the time of the event is entirely normal. Now when you look at people who are uh, suffering from PNES um, the entire manifestation of seizure-like episodes uh, in a patient where there isn't this abnormal electrical activity, this can be considered a subclass of a group of uh, psychiatric or psychological disturbances called somatoform conversion reactions. Underlying idea is that for many of these patients a very specific traumatic event can be identified so that uh, one way to view this is that imagine, and this is usually the description that I'm going to give to uh, patients when I'm explaining to them uh, what these events are, how they get caused. So imagine that you've got a, oh, we'll, we'll say a second grader, and he's going to a school, and the school is not the greatest school, and there's a school bully there. And he goes to the school, and uh, the school bully beats the living crap out of him, takes his pocket change, takes his lunch, Kid goes home, he's crying, he's upset, parents make him feel better. Next day, he wakes up and there are two facts in his universe and these are in absolute opposition. The first fact is that he has to go to school. It's not like he can wake up and go, you know, I'm not, I'm not feeling it today, I'm just going to blow off second grade. The second fact is that he can't possibly go to school. Because if he goes to school, he knows the school bully's sitting there waiting for him. He's going to beat him up. So he's terrified, can't go. Those two facts are 
absolutely real, undeniable, unchangeable, and completely in opposition to each other. So you can imagine inside of his mind that pressure building up and building up and what's, and here's the key point, not unusual under those circumstances for that kid to develop a stomach ache. His stomach absolutely hurts. His mind has taken that internal stress and converted it into a physical symptom. And if he goes downstairs, he tells his parents he's got an upset stomach and he's feeling sick and they keep him home. As soon as that stressor has been resolved, the stomach ache goes away. You could take the kid, not that anyone would ever do this, but you could biopsy his stomach and do all kinds of him. You'd find absolutely nothing physically wrong. But that stomach pain that he's experiencing, that's as real as a broken leg. He doesn't have any control over it. He's not faking it. It is absolutely real. So, most of the time, when we be, this is a natural, this type of conversion, a somatoform uh, soma meaning the body, you're converting something into a physical symptom. This is a natural process that occurs when you're a kid. When we become adults, things change. We gain greater control of our own actions and of our environment. So now you're an adult and you've got a work bully. You know, at some institution there is a bully. And you've probably all worked at institutions where there are the adult versions of bullies, unfortunately. So you go there and you've got a work bully. Well, one of the things you can do is change jobs, right? You leave and work somewhere else. Or you take karate lessons for a couple of years and then you beat up the work bully. And obviously this is an exaggeration, but you basically have other options than total helplessness in the face of the fact that you have to work and you can't. On a lighter level, on a day-to-day -day basis, you can't leave your job or something, well, what do we do with that built-up internal stress? We meditate, we bake cookies, we play with puppies, you do what basket weave, you do whatever it is that you need to do that lowers your level of stress. And this is essentially adult human existence 99% of the time. But to use an example that most people can understand in the modern age, imagine you now have that same kid, he's gotten over it, he's now 19 years old, he gets shipped off to Afghanistan uh, into an active combat scene and he watches his best friend get blown apart by an uh, IED and he's maybe 10 feet away when this happens. There are a few things more horrific that you could imagine. He rotates out, he goes home, he gets discharged, and now he's home and we'll say he's married, has a family, and there are two facts in his universe. One is he has to go to work, he has to interact with people, he has to support his family, otherwise they're going to be out on the street. And at the same time, he can't because every time he begins to think about what happened, he completely disintegrates and falls apart, can't function. And now he's got that same uh, internal opposing forces, the same uh, situation he had when he was a child, but now he's an adult. The uh, forces are a million times worse and there are no parents out there that are somehow going to make this make him feel better. 
It is not unusual under those circumstances for that person, and this can be male or female, to develop headaches, nausea, numbness and weakness, uh, speech difficulties, paralysis, or even seizure-like episodes. And it is exactly the same process except in a more exaggerated extreme form where you're converting this internal stress into a physical symptom. Again, absolutely real, not faking it. It is not something they have any control over. Now, when you go into the epilepsy monitoring unit and you're looking at uh, patients who are being referred for seizures that can't be controlled by medication, so they've been given a diagnosis of epilepsy, they're having recurrent seizure-like events, they, maybe they got an EEG and it was negative, but the neurologist knows that the EEG can be perfectly, a routine EEG can be perfectly normal in 50% of patients who do have epilepsy. They got an imaging study and it was normal, but there are lots of patients with epilepsy who have normal imaging studies, so the physician decided to put them on medication anyway. They tried a medication or two, it didn't work. Now they're being sent for uh, video telemetry. Now, formerly, this would always be inside of an epilepsy monitoring unit. With the advent, we can now do this in the patient's home. So they go there. You get the study and you record the event and you see that they have the event and there is no uh, abnormal electrical activity. Right? When you look in epilepsy monitoring units where those diagnoses are being made, might surprise you to learn that up to one-third of patients uh, in some epilepsy monitoring units have non-epileptic events. And specifically, approximately 20% of patients presenting to physicians with seizure-like events eventually receive a diagnosis of PNES. The incidence has recently been observed to be about 4.9 per 100,000 uh, people per year. It is one of the three most common diagnoses in patients who present with transient loss of consciousness, and this is the most common functional, and by using the term functional, we're saying medically unexplained symptom that presents to neurologists. So this is an extremely common uh, illness. And I emphasize the fact that this is an illness. It has a cause and it is treatable because there is a tendency, even on, on the part of medical personnel, to look at these patients and go, ah, they're just crazy. Well, they're not. And uh, if they had a broken leg, you wouldn't react in that fashion. You would identify the fact that their leg was broken and you would treat it appropriately. That's exactly what should be happening here. Uh, overall prevalence in the population is uh, more uncertain, anywhere from 2 to 33 people per 100,000 in the general population. The most common onset is uh, between the ages of 15 to 30. And three-quarters of the patients in most series are female. Um, that is true to a point. When you look at children, uh, people with intellectual disability, older adults who present and uh, get this diagnosis, it's uh, closer to a 50-50 split. Unfortunately, the most common trigger in the females who are diagnosed in the epilepsy monitoring unit is a history of physical or sexual abuse, which is 
just grotesquely too common. Um, and, you know, I could get up on a soapbox and, and opine on this for a lengthy period of time. And I will, I will grant you that I've been sensitized by years of working in an epilepsy monitoring unit and seeing these patients. But this is the reality. This is the, the cause in, in many of these women. There is treatment uh, for these patients. There are a number of therapeutic interventions uh, published in the literature, psychoeducation, relaxation, symptom control methods. These include all kinds of things like focusing attention on fixation points outside the body, uh, eye movement desensitization, say that three times fast, and reprocessing identifying and managing seizure triggers, improving emotion recognition and tolerance, reducing avoidance, addressing maladaptive interpersonal patterns and narrative reconstruction of trauma memories. And that latter is particularly important. Uh, this isn't a, a talk about post-traumatic stress disorder, but it is a, a, an approach that's very similar to how patients with PTSD uh, end up being effectively treated. And that is a topic for another time. But the, the point is that there, is, there are uh, a variety of potentially effective treatments. Some of these treatment packages have shown promise, uh, particularly those based on cognitive behavioral therapy and psychodynamic interpersonal therapy. Um, there is a problem that adequately powered controlled studies to look at the outcomes are lacking but it is very clear that uh, there are some of these therapies that are effective and I can personally attest to the fact that in my own practice when appropriately addressed and treated these patients do well and, and get better. So the major points on this, the, patients, uh, the number of patients that are suffering from PNES, uh, is, uh, that number is large. Uh, this is a very common illness. The gold standard for diagnosis is continuous video EEG monitoring that captures the event. Given that a lot of the stressors that may trigger the event are generally present in the patient's home, in-home video EEG monitoring that can play a crucial role in making that diagnosis uh, early. And the earlier you intervene, the less likely it is the patient's going to be placed on inappropriate medication, undergo unnecessary procedures, et cetera. And we're more likely to be able to reach the patient because if you've got a patient in an outlying community who doesn't have easy access to an epilepsy program, an epilepsy monitoring unit, it may take years before things get bad enough that they finally decide to go to the major center and get evaluated. If they can be reached in their home and the diagnosis made then, you may save them a, a lot of grief uh, and many years of, of inappropriate treatment. To emphasize again, treatments for the condition exist. And these appear to be effective, though sufficient controlled studies are lacking. And again, not making the diagnosis leads to inappropriate procedures and treatments, exposure to medications with possible adverse effects, repeated emergency department visits and hospitalizations, all going on in some cases for years. This podcast was brought to you by Stratus, the leading provider of ambulatory in-home video EEG testing. 
For more information about Stratus, please visit our website at www.stratusneuro.com.